Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, a show where we explore the world of sport and deconstruct the tools and ethos of world-class athletes to create growth and optimize business. I'm Noel Allnut, the CEO of Securo, and today I'll be talking to sports administrator Todd Greenberg. Todd is best known for his roles as CEO of Canterbury Bulldogs and the CEO of the NRL, and now he is the leader of the Australian Cricketers Association. Todd gives a great perspective into the business side of sport and how resilience is a tool needed to survive both on the pitch and in the office. Building Resilience Podcast. Todd Greenberg, welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast. How are you? Great to be on the show, Noel, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. I'd love to start the show by hearing more about your personal journey. As I say, let's let's start at the start. It'd be great to hear how uh, you got into sports and then going into sports administration and to becoming the, the CEO of the uh, the NRL. I'd love to you to, to share some more of that. Um, sure. Um, look, I'm... Uh, come from pretty modest, humble background, um, middle-class working family here in Sydney, Australia, and uh, eldest of four boys. Um, my three little brothers, uh, I would classify then, now, and in the future as my best mates and my greatest mates still today. Uh, we're very fortunate to have each other um, and our respective families and family and my, my own close uh, connection is probably the most important thing in my life. Um, so I grew up in a, a very... More, probably normal modern family environment but what was taught to me very quickly in my sports administration career is probably I was very fortunate uh, and more fortunate than I had ever anticipated um, growing up that way and what I mean by that is I took for granted that everyone went home after a day at school or, or a day at work and sat around the table with their mum their dad their siblings and, uh, and enjoyed that camaraderie and connection amongst family and having worked in the rugby league industry for well over a decade, what you realise is coming into contact with a lot of the players is they weren't afforded some of those very basic opportunities that I took for granted, you know, good education, good family upbringing um, and those conversations around the dinner table, things like domestic violence, uh, numeracy and literacy, some of the, the real pillars and starting points of your life that I was fortunate enough to get, a lot of them weren't. So there's some good learnings for me about how privileged I was and I've tried to take that through the rest of my career and my life now about gratitude and being very, um, very much, very conscious of um, being very privileged in the areas that we do all live in. And look, we face it, we live in an unbelievably great country here in Australia. So gratitude should be top of mind at every point. Yeah, we certainly are part of a such a safe society, and uh, and like you say, we 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 often do take these things for granted, and and having the gratitude to understand that not everyone has the same same privilege. I think it also then we see with a lot of people that I speak to on the show, understanding their their own beginnings, but having the awareness of where other people come from, then enables them to to take more of that empathetic approach and that a kindness to how they earn their craft and, and, and work with people. When you were first CEO of the Bulldogs, could you talk me through that? Because it was the Bulldogs at a really interesting time. Yeah, it certainly was. And uh, if you're watching the Bulldogs these days, they look like they're back in a very big hole that they need to climb their way out of. And, you know, the trouble in most sports administrators and most sports franchises is people think short-term when you've really genuinely got to talk long-term and you build that resilience for that organisation long-term, repeatable, sustainable success. So 
Uh, look, I joined the Bulldogs as a very young, naive, uh, probably unprepared CEO um, into a football club. I'd never played rugby league at any level. Um, all my upbringing and sports experiences in cricket. So I went in as, as I said, very naive, very young, very unprepared. And part of that, I think, was a strength because I was prepared to do things and challenge things that maybe you wouldn't have in the, in the benefit of hindsight. So, um, you know, I, I say this a lot to young people who say they want to work in sport. Uh, I don't think it's a, the difficult thing is actually doing it. The difficult thing is actually getting an opportunity to do it. Um, so I'm very reflective of that chance when I was, you know, effectively 30 years of age and appointed to the CEO of the Bulldogs. I reflect on the people who put me there, the board that signed off on that appointment, and then not only did they get me there, they supported me and backed me in a lot of the decisions we made over the next six years to make great progress for that club. So it was a hell of a journey. Um, I learned an enormous amount, uh, made plenty of mistakes, uh, met some incredible people, uh, formed great relationships that I still have today with players and families and, um, you know, I'll be forever thankful for the opportunity that was given to me to get my hands around a sporting franchise as proud and as historic as the Bulldogs and try to make a real difference, you know. In my first year, we pretty much lost every game. We won the wooden spoon. We terminated a whole pile of player contracts. Um, the great Sonny Bill Williams walked out in the dark of night in my first few months and, you know, we turned that around into a couple of grand final appearances and a really strong commercial model for the club that, you know, hopefully will last a long time, but they're in a big hole now, so they, uh, they've got to start again. If we go back to when you applied for the role and our 30-year-old Tom Greenberg, what was it that the Bulldogs saw in you to, uh, to give you a crack at that? What were the skills that they were, they were seeking for that you could deliver upon? Yeah, it's a good question, Noel, because, uh, you know, I've reflected on that since, but um, they clearly saw more in me than I saw in myself at that time. Um, right. And... And, and at times you need that. You need somebody to actually see something and, and back you and support you. Um, but, but I went into that role, uh, we're talking sort of, you know, 2008, so it's a while back now. But at that particular time, my view from the outside looking in at the Bulldogs was they were an organisation that were broken. Uh, their brand was really, really poor. Uh, that had a number of off-field incidents that had salary cap scandals that had a, a very big sexual assault allegation in Coffs Harbour some years before. So I, I effectively sat in front of that board as a candidate and told them all the things that was wrong with them. And, and I told them that if they, they wanted someone who played 200 games and won a grand final, don't pick me. Um, if they wanted someone who knew the next best halfback, don't pick me. Um, but if you want someone who's going to really work hard, think strategically, roll the sleeves up and turn around a strategy for this club long-term, uh, I'm in. So give me a shot and thinking as I walked out of that first interview, I'd be 100 to 1. Um, the chairman at the time, his name is Dr. George Paponis, a um, highly successful uh, practitioner in Sydney, a kangaroo, an Australian kangaroo who represented his country in rugby league. He was the chairman and he believed enough in me and supported me and that's exactly what we did do. We rolled the sleeves up, we created a strategy and we, we executed it over the next five years. It's amazing where hard work and transparency can get you. Um, so often I say to, to my team, make sure you tell the customer uh, what we're not, just what we are, because it's really important to know and uh, and give them give them that faith. If, if you're telling me what you can't do and you tell me what you can, I'm going to really trust you around that because 
there's a lot of people out there who kind of want to be famous for everything and it's it's just not feasible and hard work beats skill um every I time completely anyway. agree completely the other part i'd say now is always buy your stock when it's low so um i always came in at a low point so i thought uh if i can do half of the things that i think i can do um i reckon we might be able to do something here and look it's a it's a very proud and famous club um you know, they've won premierships and got an enormous supporter base, a very multicultural supporter base, which I really enjoyed getting to know lots of different communities and the lessons and le- lessons learned from dealing with different socioeconomic groups was enormous. So I had a brilliant time there. Um, you know, making a grand final was one of the highlights of my career, just watching the joy in people's faces and making them proud of their club. You know, I always used to say, you don't have to necessarily win every weekend to be successful in sport, but you have to give your fans a team that they're proud of and that they know that every week their team turns up in whatever sport it is and they give their absolute best because you're in a contest and you can't win every week. If if the top of your strategy is to win, you're going to fail spectacularly. Um, repeatable, sustainable success is really what you should be looking for and to make people proud of who you are. And If you do that in sport, uh, I reckon you'll find success at the end of that tunnel. Yeah, there's a, there's a good quote. I think it's Tony Robbins that says, you are what you do consistently. Um, and, I, and I really believe in that. Um, there's quite a lot of our listeners who've got a passion for sport and they are in business. And something that you, you mentioned there around uh, building our processes, building out a structure that is, that is repeatable so the franchise could flourish. Could you put that business hat on for a, for a moment and kind of share some of those insights into, into how you make a rugby league club sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'll make a couple of comments here. First of all, working in sport is fascinating and there's lots of people who come to me and say, I'd really like to work in sport. And I always caution them and say, careful what you wish for there. It's a bit like the person who likes to eat sausages. You wouldn't want to go and see how they're made. Um, <laughs> and I think sport is a bit like that. You know, it's it's pretty combative. Um, it's confrontational. Um, there's uh, a lot of agendas and self-interest. Um, and, and ultimately, it's emotional. People are very emotional and passionate about working in sport and playing sport and, and being involved inside the industry. So I get a sense there's always a blend between business and sport to run it. Uh, professionally, you have to consider it a business, but you've always got to understand what business you're in, which is sport. And some of those might seem ironic, but that's what that's what it is. It's 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 a it's a business trying to be a sport, um, and it, it it is complex, and there are multiple stakeholders. But to go back and answer the question, it's as simple as making sure you surround yourself with subject matter expertise in all of the different areas. As I said at the beginning of that process, I don't know who the next best halfback was coming through. I wasn't with tactics about how to play the games. But what I was good at was getting the right people in the right slots and holding them to processes and then accountability on the actions that they generated. And if that's the business model of a CEO, um, effectively, that's what you do in a football club or a sports franchise. You get lots of different people with different skill sets, whether they're selling corporate hospitality or they're trying to generate great fan experiences or they're the recruitment officer getting the next best halfback through. Um, if you have the best people in those slots, and you've got strong processes, and then the accountability that goes with it, there's almost a guarantee that you'll have some success there. Yeah, surround yourself with great people, and um, it can make your job easy as long as you uh, as long as you, you you remain humble and and have that gratitude to to respect their capabilities. It's definitely uh, become really formidable. The other thing I'd say to you there is sometimes you've got to put your own ego at the door to surround yourself with lots of good people. Um, you know, there's that great quote. That, smartest person um, in the room is usually not yourself. So 
do more listening than talking. Um, but to do that, you have to put your ego to one side. And, you know, the best lessons I've learned in leadership over my time are, are arguably what not to do rather than what to do. Um, I've seen lots of leaders make bad errors of judgment and, you know, call the wrong play occasionally. And so you learn through that. You learn through the prism of maybe what not to do as much as what to do. Um, and in sport, there's lots of lessons. And I've seen some of the smartest, best business people uh, in their sphere join sport and make the most irrational and emotional decisions of all time. Um, but you wouldn't change that for one minute because sport is an emotional business. Effectively what sport is, it's an emotional connection with fans and you need to generate that emotional connection. And without it, you fail spectacularly. So you can't take that emotional connection out and run a normal business because that's not sport. Um, and that's the challenge. You've got to work in an emotional environment but not make emotional decisions. Yeah, that does sound pretty tough <laughs> uh, in order to do that, especially when, again, you're caught up. It's not just uh, the emotional decisions of the person in front of you. It's the, the 25, 30,000 people on the outside as well, all uh, all gunning for those decisions to pay off. And everyone's got an opinion, and everyone will unashamedly come up and tell you how to do your job better. So um, that's that's the beauty of working in, in, a, in a profile role in sport is no matter where you go, no matter what you do, someone's got some... Very good feedback. I used to get a lot of lot of unsolicited feedback <laughs> that comes in the form of shouting um, <laughs> from the sidelines. Um, could you talk me through what it was like to be CEO of the NRL, um, such an iconic brand and event, and um, uh, for for Australia? Um, could you talk me through that because it must have been a fascinating time? Yeah, I mean, I loved. My five years at the helm of the NRL, it was a great privilege, um, you know, having your hands on the controls of one of the biggest, most profile sports in the country. There's very few opportunities that you get in your career to do that. So I loved every minute of it. Um, bloody hard work, though, um, and you've got to be prepared to do lots of hard work and, you know, engage with lots of different stakeholders um, who all have different interests um, and that's one of the challenges is managing that variety of stakeholders whether they're commercial investors or the players themselves or quite simply delivering for the fans so it's a complex business um, with lots as I said lots of self-interest but I had a brilliant ride uh, we made some unbelievable gains and journeys through, through my time I'm really proud of some of the things we've achieved uh, but ultimately for all of us the game is much much bigger than any individual you serve the sport and you serve it well, and you do your best, and you hand the keys over to the next person, and it's exactly how it should work. You shouldn't overstay your welcome in those sort of leadership roles. I always get a sense that people sometimes will overstay their welcome. Um, it's time to put in, do what you think is best, and then hand it over and wish them good luck. Yeah, what would be your, if you could describe to me, the biggest win that you had at the NRL and kind of what facilitated that, but also what was one of the biggest setbacks that you had to bounce back from? Yeah, some interesting um, you know, challenges that we had during during my time. I mean, I looked through a couple of lenses about the success of my time in, in footy. Um, clearly, the commercial growth of the game was phenomenal. Uh, over those years that we were there, um, you know, the revenue growth was extraordinary. We're talking double-digit compound growth year on year, um, which was uh, amazing for the sport to have so much revenue come in, which allowed it to invest in lots of different areas. Um, the advent of the professional female game during my time was something that I look back on with great pride um, and I think it will continue to, to need investment and will continue to strive and, and, and be successful. 
And, and I think in, in more general terms, rugby league and the sport itself being known for being inclusive uh, and being open for everybody in a sport for all, um, you know, a huge uh, number of the participants now come from Polynesian backgrounds and Indigenous backgrounds. Um, and to generate that sort of inclusive environment where everyone felt welcome and safe uh, inside that was something we worked very hard on. So, again, that's certainly some long-term measures that I look back on fondly with. Yeah, Congratulations! It's uh, um, I was um, I've been in Australia now for fourteen years, so a lot of the time I was involved in in, in watching uh, the the NRL that you were in charge there, and I, uh, I used to yeah always think that when you're in front of the cameras, it's uh, it's not an easy job uh, to talk through the the highs and the lows in real time. You're always got the spotlight there, so congratulations on the on the games that you made. You're now CEO of the Australian Cricket Association. So again, changing codes back to back to the, the code that you started playing in your in your younger years. Um, how's that going at the moment? Well, it's been a, a really nice change. Uh, I've just returned home from um, almost a month in Pakistan with the Australian men's team, and that itself was an eye opener. Uh, it's a long way from a Saturday night game of rugby league at Wollongong or something like that, that's for sure. So <laughs> being in uh, Islamabad. Uh, so, look, I, I've really enjoyed it. Um, the role encompasses um, representation for both our male and female elite cricketers, um, and I've been nothing but incredibly impressed by all of them, um, the maturity they have, clearly their skill level. Um, but the thing that shines most when you talk to our, our Australian cricketers, both male and female, is their strong connection and desire to support grassroots cricket and where they came from. You know, effectively every single one of them started their journey uh, in community cricket, in club cricket, with volunteers coaching them and helping them through. And all of them have a realisation that that needs continued investment and support. So when you talk to them, their, their passion points are actually where they came from. Um, I think that's incredibly powerful for the sport of cricket and the game of cricket where players have very strong insights of their journey from start to finish and they're proud of that and they want to continue to give back. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I'm a relatively newbie into cricket. I've only been in this role for pretty much a year and most of that was in COVID. So um, it's been great fun. I've been given a very warm welcome, which has been really nice. And um, there's a lot of great people that I'm meeting in cricket. Um, so I'm really hoping to make a difference and really help the players in this uh, next journey for them. Where do you see the the future of Australian cricket? Obviously, a, a crushing Ashes victory recently and now a change of coaching. What does the next 12 to 18 months look like for the Australian cricket teams? Yeah, the um, both men and women have got an unbelievably busy schedule. Um, our men's team will shortly head to Sri Lanka for another tour um, of tests and white ball cricket. Um, our female players uh, have just returned from obviously a successful World Cup in New Zealand uh, many of them will go across now to the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh and play there for our female cricketers. And then many of them will go to England to play in the 100. They'll all come back for our domestic series here um, in Australia. I think our men's team have South Africa and New Zealand touring over summer. And then, if you can believe it, our men's team go across to India for four tests before they then go to the UK to compete for the Ashes again. So um, there's more cricket in the next 18 months for our men and women than we know what to do with, which... It's a great problem to have uh, when there's an oversupply of games. And the one thing cricketers do and want is they want to play. They're forever wanting to get on the field and play. So they're going to get plenty of opportunity to do that in the next few months. Yeah, I was reading an article um, in preparation for this. And I think it's quite, it's 
it shows a level of resilience, but also adaptability um, from a business perspective um, around the South African one day international games have been moved into the afternoon uh, in order to um, continue kind of fueling the fire of the big bash. Could you kind of talk me through the strategy around that? Yeah, I think it's just some more pragmatic scheduling and thinking about how you continue to evolve and innovate your own products. I mean, Cricket has a number of different products, whether it's the long-form version of the game, which clearly pitches to a, a more um, traditional audience, uh, and then you've got the T20 uh, the games, which are clearly generating families and kids and the next generation of stars. So I think finding a balance in the scheduling and being able to pivot and, and move some of those games in order to satisfy investors and broadcasters and scheduling and fans is a good thing. Um and cricket's been seen, I think, over generations as very traditional. Um, and part of the change that we are making in cricket is to be more uh, innovative in the way we think and the way we behave. And, you know, we've just recently signed a deal with NFTs for our players and, and Cricket Australia. And if you'd asked me 12 months ago what an NFT was, I would have said <laughs> I had NFI about NFTs. But I've learned more about, you know, the metaverse and that concept for fan engagement in a new generation over this period of time. And, that translation of learning is now going to the players about how we can maximise that opportunity. So there's lots of great new challenging innovations coming to sport and cricket's realising that. And I suppose the real difference that I see is, you know, rugby league, despite it being successful in a big sport, is relatively domestic. Um, cricket is unbelievably global. Um, when you walk into a country the size of Pakistan of 250 million people, and then you're about to tour a country of India with more than a billion people who are literally following one sport, which is cricket, you realise you're playing the big time now. Have you got any kind of specific mentors or other people across business or sport that you would say that you've seen their resilience or their kind of structure and processes that you look to um emulate in your life or when you're giving advice out to, to younger younger cricketers or uh, across across sports that you've said have a look at this person that's a good example yeah look there are lots of people I admire and look up to I, I do have a, a mentor in place and he's been a mentor of mine for gosh more than 20 years but I, I can tell you that probably for the first 10 years I didn't even know him as a mentor he was someone I relied on and talked to and bounced ideas off and only in more recent times did I probably reference him as a mentor as opposed to someone who was giving me some guidance. And that person is not someone in sport, um, not someone who knows the intricacies of my day-to-day role. It's someone who sits with me quite often and challenges me on my thinking, challenges me on my values and following those values and challenges me a lot on that personal and work and life balance, and making sure that you know, those things are in sync and I'm spending enough time with family and I'm doing enough exercise and training to keep myself fit, healthy, both in mind and in spirit and and challenges you on some of the decisions you make as opposed to the minutiae of your day-to-day role. So I find that extremely valuable uh, to challenge yourself occasionally. And then, you know, across my journey, I've met so many good people, um, so many smart, successful people who, who bring different life skills and lessons to your own journey. And and it's important that people understand as they progress their own professional career that you do have to love the journey itself. It's actually not about the destination. You genuinely have to love the journey and you've got to, you've got to be prepared to enjoy the grind occasionally. Um, you know, there was a term we used to use a lot in footy, which was 
there's a tough day coming. We know there's an issue to deal with. Time to put the headgear on and the mouth guard on and we're just going to bite down here and get through it. And, you know, there's lots of those sorts of days. I can tell you there's a lot less of them in cricket than there was in, in footy, but um, occasionally you have to do that. You just have to bite down on that mouth guard and work your way through a challenge or a problem and come out the other side. And it does need a level of resilience to do that. You need to have a relatively thick hide to get through some of those challenging situations. But, you know, having an even temperament and, um, you know, demeanour about how you take those challenges on and leading people in a calm and considered way and, you know, having a, a solid approach to solving some of those challenges will always get you through the other side. Um, and, and I've learned that over over time. It's a, it's a learned behaviour. It doesn't happen overnight, um, but it does happen. The more you do it, the better you get. Yeah, back to that point around repetition and and in, in working hard and going through the process and, and doing it again and doing it again. It's a uh, you 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 see a lot where people go, oh, they make it look easy, um, but they're they're the people who've spent the hours with the mentor, they've spent the hours on the training pitch, they've they've spent the hours in the classroom that that nobody else sees. The final question for the day, Todd, is the the final question I ask everyone on the show. How does Todd Todd Greenberg uh, describe resilience? Yeah, I think the word itself means different things to different people um, and it means different things to people in a different context occasionally as well. But, you know, at its most simple form, resilience to me is when you get hit, you get back up again. Um, and when you get hit, you get back up again and you keep getting back up again because you know there's always another opportunity to challenge yourself. So um, we will all have setbacks in life, uh, having been through sport for a long period of time, one thing I can assure every person listening to this is life is not a straight line. Um, there are multiple issues you will deal with over the course of your journey, both personally and professionally, and you're judged on your resilience and how you bounce back from some of those lessons as opposed to the actual outcome. So people will judge you and you'll judge yourself on how resilient you are and how you can bounce back from some of those challenges because if you haven't been challenged yet, there's nothing more certain that it's coming. Um, so... Be prepared for those challenges and be prepared to build that level of resilience because I think over time you do build your own levels of resilience. And as I said, to that level of having a thick hide where you can challenge and face some of those challenges and get through them and you come out the other side and you'll be much, much better for it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point there. It's, uh, resilience is created. It's uh, it's not something that you're born with. Todd, thank you very much for taking the time today. I've really enjoyed the conversations, hearing all about your career and, and how you approach uh, the way in which you excel uh, within your roles. And thank you very much for everything you've given back to the sports uh, that you've worked with. And thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me on the program. Much appreciated. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Building Resilience podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen so you don't miss future episodes. Thanks to our guest today, Todd Greenberg. We really appreciate your time. Thank you to our sponsor, Securo. If you'd like to know more about myself or Securo, you can head to securo.io. Securo. Trust tomorrow. This podcast was made by Afternoon Sport Group. G'day, this is Tim Gilbert. And I'm Shane Lee. Together, we'll bring you the only podcast you'll need to get your daily dose of sport. With episodes out Monday to Friday afternoons, ready for you on your drive home. We've got a quick hit of sports headlines, keeping you up to date with the news you need to know. And we'll take a deep dive into the stuff you've always wanted to know. Cannot wait. Follow us on your podcast app so you don't miss it. We'll see you then.